Heavenly Father, as the children were learning, and as we were learning with them, might we see the riches of Christ afresh as we look at these verses? Might we see how much we have in him? Might we love him more? In his name, amen. So just imagine with me, you get the proverbial door open, prayed for conversation on that day. So the chat with your colleague in the workplace, the chat with your neighbour on your street, your dinner table with your sister or your parents, whatever it is, someone who, who doesn't claim to follow Christ. And they ask you, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's that actually about? And you're thinking, what an opportunity. Wow. How, how do you describe it? What would you say at that point? It's interesting, isn't it? Because Sometimes you listen into other people and the language they use. and So sometimes people talk about, in a dominant way, the language of being saved. Maybe that was the kind of Christian context that you grew up in. Sometimes people talk about making a decision for Christ. Sometimes the language of simply following Jesus. Maybe it's just being a believer. What's striking, though, is when you come across books like Colossians, many of Paul's letters, actually, he, the way he describes being a Christian, because it's biblically true, of course, to say that we have been saved by Christ. You will see that kind of language in Ephesians. Or deciding to follow him, you'll get that all through the Gospels with the disciples. And we're called Christians in Acts and in 1 Peter, so there's nothing wrong with that. We're believers in 1 Corinthians. But actually there is a phrase describing our relationship with Christ that is all over Paul's letters. It is often on Paul's lips per se, but perhaps not so much on ours. I would say that's not entirely true actually at Magdalen Road. We had a weekend away a couple of years ago focused on it. But I take it it's still something we should be more familiar with, more at ease with, part of our everyday language. And it's this idea of being in Christ Theologians would say the idea of union with Christ. I wonder, before we do just jump back into Colossians, though, why, why don't we talk about being in Christ that much? Why is it a sort of foreign to us? Why don't we use that kind of idea that much? I wonder, for some of us, it might just be a bit mystical. So there's kind of a fear, a slight misunderstanding. For some of us, it may just be tricky to get our minds around what it actually means. I mean, what does it mean to be in Christ? Perhaps you're thinking that. One writer puts it like this, describing this kind of trickiness. They say, if someone tells me, I follow Christ, well, that's fine, I get that. If someone says, I'm under Christ, under his authority, yeah, I know what that means. I'm saved by Christ, got it. Inspired by Christ, check. Taught by Christ, bingo. In submission to Christ, yeah, I hear you. These are all concepts I understand and ideas for which I have a ready analogy. Christ as a leader, as a Lord, as a saviour, as an inspiration, as a teacher, as a ruler. But in Christ, it almost seems to portray him as a place, a, a location, a sphere almost. Somewhere that you can be. How does that work, the writer says? Well, let me just try an analogy for you. 
And of course, the problem with any analogy is that it only works at some levels and not others. So don't push it too far. But we'll give it a go anyway and see if it helps. Imagine with me, it's half term week, which it is. But instead of being stuck here in kind of windy, grotty Oxford, you fancy some autumn sun. And so there you are at Heathrow, ready to board your plane to Barcelona. Hopefully I've not lost you with daydreams. Come back in the room. We're at Heathrow, we're looking out, and we see the aeroplane outside, ready to be boarded. You are inside, hand luggage, all good to go. And my question for you is, a slightly silly question, but what relationship with that plane do you need to get to where you want to go to, to get to Barcelona? What do I mean? Would it be helpful for you to be under the plane? That is the plane to be in charge of you, for you to submit yourself to the plane, the plane's authority and the whole flying to Barcelona thing? Would it help for you to be inspired by the plane? If you just watch it and just see it getting loaded, it's beautiful. If I just watch it take off, it's, it melts my heart. One day I could be like that plane too. It's so inspirational. What about, what about following the plane? You think... I know the plane's going to Barcelona. If I just take the note of the direction in which it goes and I pursue it as fast as I possibly can over land and over sea, then I too might end up in Barcelona. Of course not. The relationship that you need with the plane is of being in the plane, not under it or inspired by it or following it. You need to be in it. Why is that? But Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will happen to you as well. And the question, did you get to Barcelona, will be part of a larger question. Did the plane get to Barcelona? And if the plane got to Barcelona and you were on that plane, then you will be in Barcelona, warming yourself. And it's only an analogy and it only works at certain levels. I don't push it too far. But at the, the heart of the Bible, this idea of being in Christ is something a bit like that. What the Bible is saying about our our, our faith in Jesus, our being united to him, means that whatever is true of Jesus is also true of us. And so have a look down with me at verse 6 and 7 of our passage for this morning. It's page 1183 if you've lost it in the church Bibles. Look at what Paul says. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Do you see, in receiving Christ as Lord, then they were joined to him. They became in him at that point. They boarded the plane. He and we are together forever now. One theologian puts it like this. They say union with Christ is the Christian life. It's as strong as that. It's not some small particular blessing that might go alongside the key blessings of the gospel. But union with Christ is the Christian life. And so when you receive Christ as Lord, verse 6, when we stop being in charge of our own lives, when we acknowledge that it's about him, that he calls the shots now, then we are joined to him. And essentially the old us has gone now. There's this fundamental change forever. We become in Christ. And actually it's striking. He uses, I think, at least four different 
interlinking pictures, metaphors, descriptions to help us see what this looks like, what it means, the, the difference that union with Christ makes, but also then the implications for that union on how we live, how we think about ourselves, for the kind of new life we ought to be living. To, to push it too far, we're on the plane going to Spain, but that changes how we might live now. In Christ, we've become a new people. We're to live like a new people. And so the four different pictures, have a look down with me, they do kind of jumble into each other and interweave. But the first one is there, verse 11, he talks about circumcision. You see it there? In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self-ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, what's that? Well, circumcision in the Bible is a literal cutting off of flesh. Kids, you can chat to your parents later about that. But what Paul is saying here is something slightly different. He is saying, as Jesus' body was torn away at the cross, as he there defeated the power of sin, so for the Christian, for the in-Christ person... Our sinful nature, our self-ruled by the flesh, with him has been cut away. Christ in his flesh was cut off. And as we're joined to him, we can say we are circumcised by Christ. In him we've been circumcised, verse 11. Which then slides into verse 12 as we've been raised through baptism. Striking for Paul, an unbaptized Christian is a contradiction in terms. And so he says, as you've received Christ as Lord, so you believed, you were baptized. And it's as if you went down into the water and you died with Christ. You were buried with him. And then you come back out of the water again and you've been raised to new life. You've risen with him. If you're a believer, you are with Christ. You died on the Friday as he died. You were raised again on the Sunday as he was raised. The old new is now dead and gone. The new you is alive forever in Christ. Which then slides into verse 13. Do you see again it's the same pattern? Maybe even a summary actually of 11 and 12. But we were dead in our sins. We were uncircumcised in our flesh. Now we've been made alive with Christ. How is that? Because we were, verse 14 and 15 then, forgiven this debt that he talks of. We have been forgiven a debt by the Lord. He forgave all our sins. Let me just say this, friends. It's worth just pointing out there is no sin too big. There are no sins too many. Whatever your story, whatever you feel most ashamed about, the blood of Jesus is enough for you. Look at it, he... He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's, it's as if before a good and perfect and pure and holy God, we were stood there in court and we were obviously completely guilty. It was a complete no-brainer. In his moral universe, we were condemned. We had sinned. There was nothing we could do about it. There was nothing. There was no doubt. You were condemned. We were condemned. We were dead men walking. 
And we deserved everything that came to us. Except we didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve grace. But in Christ, that was what we received. Because he cancelled the charges. He nailed them to the cross. He, he paid them for us. It is a shocking idea. I understand how offensive it, it, it feels. It sounds. Paul doesn't pull any punches. You have sinned against God, he says. You stand condemned before God, he says. Unless you're in Christ, this gift of forgiveness that you could never deserve. And as he does that, verse 15, he, he disarms the powers and authorities. Hostile spiritual forces, including Satan, they are all now toothless, says Paul. For Satan, all his weapons have gone. His weapons of fear and guilt and condemnation and accusation, they are taken away by Christ. He has been totally disarmed. He has nothing on them, nothing on us. And so now in the hypothetical situation of Satan saying to God, look at them, look at their sin. Look at what they've done again. Look at it, God. How should you treat them? You are, say you are holy, you say you are pure, you say you are just, then you should punish them. We're in a moral world, says Satan to God. They deserve your justice. And God says, look at the cross and look at my son and look at him dying and bearing their guilt and taking away their debt to me and then being raised again to new life. These people are now in Christ, says God. They are mine. Now leave them alone. Now, so do you see why being in Christ is so important? Why it is the Christian life. It is the means by which we receive the blessings of Jesus in us, for us. A couple of points of application before we move on. The first thing just to say is, I know it's obvious, but none of these things are earned. Not striking. All these things have been done for us, to us, by nature of us being in Christ, our union with him. There's not something we contribute to apart from, apart from our needing it, apart from our sin. And sometimes we think, well, if I can just go to church enough, if I can just behave well enough, if I can just keep that sin at bay enough, if I could just read my Bible enough or pray enough, if I can just not let God down again enough, then and maybe God will be okay with me. Isn't it striking? It's in receiving Christ Jesus as Lord and being found in him. That is what turns everything upside down. I want to say, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer or saved or in Christ or following Jesus or any of those things, the story we often hear or even the story that our hearts kind of veer towards is that God kind of reluctantly, if he has to forgive some people, if they kind of deserve it and they're just about good enough. But isn't it striking? The language that Paul uses is just offensive. Verse 11, do you see your, 
your whole self ruled by the flesh. Or verse 13, you were dead in your sins. Verse 14, you were condemned and in debt to God. That is not the language of doing enough to make God happy with you, keeping him off your back. That is the language of helplessness, lostness, death and condemnation. And we don't like that very much. But then here's the good bit. The good bit is now we are completely different because we are in Christ. So we can't deserve it. We can't earn it firstly. But secondly, look at the difference it makes. Because we are alive now. We're not just a bit alive. Just a little bit alive, but rather we are in him. We have been baptized, circumcised, alive, forgiven. The debt has gone. You are a new person because of Jesus. And it can be that we get frustrated with ourselves if you're here as a believer. And you look in at your sin or you look back at that past muck up this last week and you just, does God really love me? Really? I've done it again. But look, you are in Christ. You are as joined to him as you can ever be. You are alive. You are forgiven. You are secure. You are clean. That changes how we think about ourselves. It changes the perception of ourselves that we have and the perception that we think God has of us because we are in Christ. So union with Christ starts the Christian life and changes everything. But you know, it's not just the sort of starter for 10. It's not just the ABC in the nursery. It's the A to Z for the rest of life. If you're American, it's the A to Z. It rhymes much better. We're not. It's the A to Z for the rest of life. It's the ABC and the A to Z. However old or young we are, union with Christ is all you need and so continue in him. I've looked down at six to seven again. And we've said already in this series, it's those verses really that sit at the heart of the letter, the heart of the problem that Paul is dealing with, that he's writing to the Colossians for, that he is contending for them for. Verse six, so then just as you received Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The language here, I'm told, is the language of architecture, of building. In receiving him as Lord, they have these solid foundations. They have been rooted in him. They are stable, they are steady, they are secure, they are in a good place. As you drive out of here and go up onto the Ifley Road, if you're tall or on a bus, look over at the foundations at the VW garage. Foundations really matter. But for the Colossians, it's as if they are tempted to look elsewhere for growth, to kind of uproot and go somewhere else. Now, I'm no architect, but I reckon as you watch that VW garage being redeveloped into student flats, you will see them building on the foundations that they're putting down. They're not going to build somewhere else. The foundations are what they need. I say for us, we don't go over there for growth. Or we don't think, well, that's the way forward over there. I know my foundations are here, but I'll go and have a look over there and see if that helps a bit more. 
No, no, we remain where we are, rooted and established in Christ, as we began. Because look at what's going on, verse 8. Again, we've seen it if you've been with us in previous weeks, but see to it, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Remember, it's the whispering of the false teachers who say, come on. Let's, let's build. This Jesus thing was a great starter, but let's move and grow up, shall we, a bit. Let's move on from these nursery lessons and let's go to real grown-up university where you can grow in Christ-likeness. You can become more like him. Come and try this out. This is the thing you've been looking for, they said. For them, we've said it's special knowledge It's kind of fasts and festivals and angelic worship and what you know and what you do and what you experience. It's all very self-centered, all very me at the heart of it all. I'm in the middle. For us, it's not so much those things. It's it's the silver bullets that we get tempted by. It's the fast-track Christian growth. It's the books, the churches, the ministries, the conferences that, that look really impressive. And people say, you need this. This is what you need. We want to be impressive Christians to deal with things. And so we get duped by these silver bullets. And yet Paul says these things that we do, they depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He's deliberately being cheeky and rude here, but offensive even. What's going on? Well, in Paul's days, the, the kind of majority pagan spirituality of the time will have been something along the lines of there being local deities that were in charge of particular bits of creation, associated with particular bits of creation, little gods in charge of different things. And you could placate them and you could please them if you did the right stuff. If you, if you made sacrifices, if you pleased them, then they, it went, you would receive from them. And so for the Colossians here, their, their preoccupation with these rules and these material things are kind of driving them back to hollow and deceptive philosophy. Driving them back to their pagan worship of their past. Controlling their gods by what you do. And yet it's striking, isn't it? Because we'll see in weeks to come, at least in part, he is talking about Jewish worship and tradition and holy days and rules and probably the kind of things that you could read in the Bible. But you see, by readopting those things, however good they were at the appropriate time, by readopting them, they are just drawing them back into their old pagan worldview. He's syncing them up with their pre-Christian muscle memory again. And anyway, why would you want to do that, says Paul? Verse 9 and 10. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Don't, don't get duped by those things. You have fullness. The idea in Paul's mind is probably that of, kind of from the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. There, physically, God revealed himself to his people. He took up residence in a building, per se. Now he's done it in a body. The fullness of God in a person. 
There, the focus of the people of God for their worship, for their life, was in bricks and mortar. Now it's in flesh and blood, in Jesus. The fullness of God in a person. And it's not just an idea. They are in Christ, and so they have the fullness that comes from the fullness of God being in Christ. So we have that fullness too, because we are in Christ. We are on the plane. I was reminded um, in preparing for this of our weekend away a couple of years ago with Andy Robinson from Woodstock Road Baptist Church. And he was speaking on this passage, or at least part of this passage. And the illustration that he used of this idea of fullness has stuck with me um, through the years. And so I thought I'd remind you as well. You may find it bringing back memories. He talked about hospitality after church. And he talked about you being invited to go round to somebody's house and you have the roast And there are two types of potato, and there are Yorkshire puddings, and there's thick gravy, just as it should be. There are vegetables, a variety of vegetables, and you eat well, and you come back for seconds, and then you realize there's pudding too, and it's crumble, and it's really good crumble with proper custard. And you go back for seconds of the custard and the crumble, and then you go back for thirds, and then you have coffee. And as you roll out to the car on your way home, I wonder, do you consider for a moment stopping for a cheeky Big Mac and a strawberry milkshake? I doubt it. Because you are full. It would be ludicrous. You are full to the brim. You have all you could ever need. But in Colossae, the people are claiming that Christ is not enough, and you need to have more. And so Paul very clearly and decisively says, you are full because you are in him who is the fullness of God. All you can know or experience of God is found in our relationship with him because we are in him. And I say that And yet I wonder if you're thinking, really? Because I know my Christian life, a lot of the time, is pretty mediocre. And why do I find living for Christ so hard? And why am I still dogged by that sin or that struggle decades on from when I first trusted Jesus? Why am I not able to grow and flourish and mature as I would like to? I wonder if you're thinking that, because I know I am. So what we're going to do this week and the next couple of weeks is we're going to start a little project. We're going to return to it um, at least for the next two weeks. And if you've done the Real Change course with Kitty, you will be aware of something like this already. And that is, it's a change project in each of our lives Maybe there's an area of your life that you're not particularly happy with. Maybe it's, maybe it's anger with people. Maybe it's dealing with your children. Maybe it's dealing with your spouse, dealing with colleagues or difficult friends or your family. Maybe it's a lack of self-control. It's a lack of self-control that means in the hardness of your life and the suffering that you're going through, you, you self-medicate to numb the pain. You medicate through food or alcohol or shopping or 
self-harm or pornography or, or gambling. Maybe it's unhelpful thoughts, the things that plague you that you just cannot shed and you wish they would go away and you long for them to go away. But they don't. Whatever it is, I'd like you to pick something. If you've been a Christian for, for five minutes or 105 years, we're all unfinished. God is still at work changing us. Whether your life is an obvious mess, and that's clear to all con- concerned, whether you look sorted and you can wear the grin and everyone thinks you're okay but you know you're not really pick something I'm going to give you 20 seconds of silence don't let your brain go off to shopping or cooking or other things just focus on one thing in particular one project for the next few weeks And so we'll start it this week, and we will work it through the next couple as well. But what I want to do is to try and look at that situation, that struggle, that hardship, through the lens of this passage in these next couple as well. Think about how what Paul says affects us. I'd love you as well, if you can, to tell somebody else what it is whether it's a spouse or a close friend or home group or something. But to have somebody else praying for you and checking up on you is a really helpful thing. So how do his words help us, Um, at least at this little baby step at the beginning? First thing I want to say is if you you read Colossians, it's striking the way Paul seems to um, refer to Jesus as Christ. We kind of don't notice it because it just comes up again and again and again. But that is one of the drumbeats through the entire letter. He is the Christ. It's not just a surname. It means Messiah. It means King. I think that's deliberate because he wants to emphasize again and again and again that as Christians, we have a new king. We have a new citizenship. We have a new ruler. We are part of a new kingdom. We've received him as Lord's. And so we're to live for him. That fact alone will begin to help us prepare for the battle of what it means to live for him. One writer puts it more like this more generally. And for the letter they say, Christ abolished the law codes that could condemn. He disarmed the powers who enslaved you with your out of control desires, brought peace in your heart and planted love for others where love of self alone once invaded everything. Now Paul says, live life under the banner of the king. Do everything in his name. Welcome to the realm where Christ reigns supreme. So baby step one is, remember we have a new king. We've received him as Lord. Remember him. But then from this passage, it's more than that as well, isn't it? If Jesus is like that... If Jesus is who we've seen him to be this morning, then stay connected to him by faith. How could you do anything else? How could you go anywhere else? How could you be tempted off to 
deceptive and hollow philosophies. Where else will you find power when he is the head over everything? Remember who you are now. You are new because you are in Christ. You have been circumcised in him, verse 11. Your whole ruled by the flesh self has been put off and done away with. It's gone forever. It's dead. It's buried. You've been baptized with him, verse 12. You have new life in him, verse 13. And when you get it wrong again and you feel condemned and broken and embarrassed and ashamed, remember 14, your debt has been abolished publicly and forever, and Christ was victorious. I don't want to tread too much on my own toes for next week, but the danger is either we forget that reality of what it means to be in Christ, of who we are now. We forget that we have been circumcised by him, baptised in him, new life in him, debts cancelled by him. We forget who we are now. We, we forget that the old self ruled by the flesh, has been put off. Either we forget, or we just try and do it in our own strength, and we kind of go back to methods that depend on human tradition, and we think, I'll just try harder. I'll just search for the hero inside, and I will beat it. I can do it, I'm sure I can. And we go for rules and regulations and rituals, and we think those are the things that will beat our sin. If I get up at 5 a.m. and read my Bible, I know I'm going to be okay. God has to sort me out then. He has to. If I put these rules in place, if I put these rituals in place, then I will beat sin. Then I will deal with these things. Then I'll stop being angry at my kids. And yet, those things are good. But we need to remember who he is and who we are in him. We need to remember to live our lives in him, to remember the fullness we have because we are in him. What do you need in that situation? You need Jesus. What do you need in your battle with Satan? You need Jesus. What do you need to deal with anger, anxiety, addictions even? Fundamentally, we need Jesus. And I know stuff's complicated, and this sounds simplistic, but fundamentally, we need Jesus. And yet we have him, because we are in him. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let me pray for us. Father, help us please to grasp better what it means to be in Christ, to, to grasp the fact that we are full because he is the fullness of you and we are in him. Help us to remember him as Christ, as king. Help us to remember that we are in this new realm ruled by him. But to remember too that we are new people. 
And so we pray that we would be a church overflowing with thankfulness because we are grasping more and more of all we have in him. And Father, as I pray for myself, I pray for others here too, that the, the project in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, that you would be with us in them. Guard us from simply sliding back into hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition, thinking that if we just do more in our own strength, then stuff will get sorted. But rather help us to grasp the decisive change that we have undergone because we are now in Christ. Help us to grasp that our old self, ruled by the flesh, has been put off because Christ's body was torn for us. Thank you that you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.